<clears throat> Father God, I just thank you so much for the devotionals that we just heard and and the songs that we can sing to to really worship you and know who you are and know your character and know what you're really after. God, I thank you that we can see the people who are truly following you uh, by knowing your word and and walking strongly and confidently in trials and and just being men and women of God that that really can can just be totally sold out for everything that you have to offer and in the ways that you act. God, I, I thank you that we are surrounded by those kind of people. And I thank you that we are a community that that has so many people here that that really read the word of God, know the word of God and and act upon it. Um and I I just pray for this time, God, that that we would see your character in your word and act accordingly and not just not just see the word of God and then move on from it, but but see truth in it and and let it bring us to action. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hello, everyone. I am Seaver. For those who don't know me, I, I recognize a, a few new faces that, that I'm not all that familiar with. Um, I go to the refuge. I am not a pastor here like the other two. Um, I just just a guy. That's all. Um, and I'm married to that beautiful woman back there, Anna, and, and her parents came with too. So that's exciting. And I get to talk about Mark. We're continuing our study in Mark. If, if you guys were with us, it's, it's been a month or two since we last went through a, a passage of Mark. I think I think it was Tim that that covered the the demi- the, the demoniac, and that was the first half of Mark five. And now I get to cover the second half of Mark five, and so I want to talk about the two stories that are mentioned there. Just making sure you can see it all right. That might be small. I have some smaller text that may not be able to be read. Anyway, so these are the two stories that we that we come to in Mark 5, uh, starting in 21 and going through the, the entire rest of the chapter. You have the story of the uh, Jairus' daughter, the synagogue official's daughter, as well as the woman who was bleeding. And all uh, these two stories, they, they go together somewhat naturally because of a chronological nature to them. Part of it is the fact that, you know, if I tell a story to somebody I'm and I'm saying I'm going over to this person's house, but then I stop off and do something first and then continue to go on to their house. So, so part of it, the fact that these two stories have been put together in all three synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark and Luke, which tell very similar stories. All three are put together or put these two stories together in the synoptic gospels partly for chronological reasons, but I think even more than that, there's, there's a lot of similarities. There's so many similarities between these two stories that I, that I think are supposed to be represented with what the similarities are in these, in these two uh, pictures of Jesus and, and how he acts towards these specific people. And I wanted to start with 
putting us in some of the cultural context of that day and age. Um, this was just around the, the turn of the like 30 AD or 33 AD sometime in between there. And it would have been a, a very religious system. They had Pharisees who, who would be the keeper of the law. They told what the law said and explained the law and tried to get people to know what the law was and, and how to obey it properly. And so I want to start with where any good sermon should start in Leviticus and Numbers. So, so starting just to get, again, a cultural context, in Numbers 19, we have, there's, there's three types of laws that people normally break down the laws into, uh, which there's, there's 613 in the, in the Old Testament, and they're split up into civil laws, moral laws, and ceremonial laws. The ones that we're covering today are ceremonial laws. What makes someone clean and what makes someone not clean? And so in Numbers 19, it says, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall pur purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if not, he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of that man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. So, someone who touches a dead body, they are ceremonially unclean. And the next one, Leviticus 15, talks about another purity law. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in, in verse seven or 27, this, this is talking about a woman who is bleeding. And if, if the woman is bleeding, she's unclean. Any bed or couch that she sits on is unclean. Anyone who touches the bed or couch or, her, or the woman is also unclean. They're ceremonially unclean. So again, they have to go through all these rituals um, to purify themselves again. They are, are deemed unclean. And so that was, that was the thought in this day. That was, and, and it comes from biblical teaching, but we'll get into to what this actually means for today's day and age. Um, but I, I just wanted to show you that before we jump into the text, to, to get you in the right mindset to see how Jesus really acts towards these situations. So I'm just going to read through all of it because all of it goes together very well in these stories. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed there by the seashore. On or One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had sent, spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. 
Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? A child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. So we reading through those stories, I think, again, the, the key point that we have to understand or several of the key points are all in the similarities between these stories. And based on the, the Leviticus and Numbers text that I read to you earlier, I, I think you know where I'm going with the first uh, similarity, but the fact that both are ceremonially unclean, ceremonially unclean. Both the woman who had the hemorrhage and was bleeding for 12 years, as well as the child who had died by the time that Jesus had got there, were ceremonially unclean. And so anything that they touch or anybody that touches them should also be ceremonially unclean. That's what the religious elites would have said in those days. That's what the people who are following strictly just the law for following the law's sake, would have said during that time that they couldn't touch a dead woman. They couldn't touch a bleeding woman because they're ceremonially unclean. And yet, what does Jesus do? Both stories, he's either touched by or touches the, the person who is ceremonially unclean. Even when he, when the, so the woman who, who touches him, not voluntarily, Jesus's choice necessarily, but she touches his garments and said, and, and she's cleansed by that. And what does Jesus do? Does he rebuke her? No. In fact, this is actually the only place that I can find where he directly calls someone daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then touching the, the dead woman or the dead girl as well would be ceremonially unclean. Yeah, just e even what, what Tad was saying earlier with, with his devotion, this, this just feels like piggybacking off of, off of what he was talking about. But these people would have been the unclean, the impure, the outcast, 
the thrown away of society because they couldn't enter the temple. Like to have a have a bleeding for 12 years meant that there's a whole lot of stuff that you can't do. You can't be a part of the temple sacrifices. You can't be a part of many of the worship that goes on to God. And yet, and she wouldn't have been allowed to do that. And yet Jesus enters into her life as well as the dead girl and raises them or heals them from their affliction. And this is, this is the entire heart of God that he's, he's trying to get across. Because remember, if we look at Hebrews 1, 3, we see that, that Jesus is the exact representation and nature of God, the father. And so we see Jesus we can see the Father. We can see the reason that even these laws were created in many ways. Um, yeah, but just just the idea that that Jesus enters into the broken and the afflicted, the throwaways of society, and wants to heal their life. He wants to touch them and and make it all better. This was totally countercultural as well. Found this photo that. Thank goodness that they were there during that time and took real photos of the Pharisees. So we have this to reflect on. But this would have been totally countercultural. All the Pharisees, they, they followed all the 600 plus laws to a T. And in fact, they made thousands of laws on top of that to say, how do you not do any work on the Sabbath? Here's 39 ways of how much you can carry and how many steps that you can take. And, and, things like that. And, and Jesus is saying, you're totally missing the point of those laws. You're totally missing the heart of God. Anybody who's, who's looking at these laws and then adding a thousand plus laws on top of that is totally missing the fact that, that God wants to enter into our lives, into the broken people's lives and heal them. So yeah, I, I just, again, copying what Tad said. I mean, this is, this is where God moves. This is who he wants us to speak to. This is, this is how we see things really happen is, is if we enter into those, uh, the lives of the broken and the outcast, which Jesus says himself in, in Matthew nine, when he's talking to these Pharisees who have all these extra laws, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I, I just want to continue to encourage that I, I constantly lose focus. I, and I know that when I go back and, and serve the poor and love the poor and love the broken, love the outcast of society who God loves, that he honors that and he moves through that. I, I constantly lose focus of that and have to reorient my my life and my actions and my ministry towards that but this is this is who god loves this is this is where his focus is and so while i was i uh when i was completing my master's thesis through school i studied the uh the missionaries of the day and what their educational process looked like and what it looked like for them before they went overseas. And I only studied the ones that were really effective. So this is Jonathan Goforth. He was a, a really effective missionary to China. And 
yeah, just, just looking at his life, even before he went to be a missionary, seeing his heart towards these people, towards the broken, the afflicted, the, the dirty and the unclean was, was, yeah, just really touching. And, and obviously God was moving there. So he, he grew up in somewhere in Canada and then went to school in Toronto. And while he was in his, uh, his seminary, he would, you know, he, he would learn the stuff that he needed to, but he really didn't pay much attention to the Greek or the Hebrew and, and he knew it, but he didn't spend much time in it because he was way too focused and way too passionate about going to the broken and the needy. And he would constantly go to the slums and he would go to brothels and he would go to the places where, where nobody wanted to go and preach the gospel to them. It was actually kind of funny. He would he would knock on somebody's door, and then in the slums area, he he only went to those areas, and then he would stick his foot in the door, so that if they tried to close it, they would they wouldn't be able to because his foot would stop it. And so he would he would stick his foot in the door. He would he would say, "Hey, I'm here to share the gospel," or however he he phrased it. And almost all of them were like, "Ah, not interested," and they'd try to close the door, and then his foot would would block it. And apparently, like he went to thousands of people throughout his time there, and only two of them he wasn't able to convince that he needed to share the love of God with them and and eventually was able to to share with them. Not all of them came to know the Lord, but he saw an average of three people a day come to Christ in that time. God really moved in in that specific area, and he knew that. He knew the fact that God cared about the poor and the broken. He he understood that idea of Isaiah 58, that, that that's where God moves is, is among those people. And so he, that was more or less his entire training and experience that led him to be a really successful missionary eventually. And he did a, a few other things as well. Lectures on revival by Charles Finney was a, a big deal in his life as well. Um. <clears throat> But I mean, this is this was his educational process. He, this is all he really cared about was seeing that God moves in the broken and the poor, and He wants to move in there. And we see really cool things that that happen when we minister to the broken and the poor, like just in this church. You know, looking at looking at all the faces, it, and at one point, like um, Jason said, is that we're all broken and poor to a degree and that God saved us from that. But there's just a difference between someone who knows it and someone who doesn't. The people who are who, who are living in the areas that Jonathan Goforth would go knew that. And and they were in the slums and knew that they needed something more because what they do were doing wouldn't work. It's usually why God answers in that because they're at the point of brokenness that they can hear what he has to say. And also just going back to the story, it it shows such an importance on us, on human beings, but as well as those who are obedient and want to seek Jesus. And, and it can't I can't help but think of Psalm 8 when I when I think of how important Jesus finds us, how important God finds us. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
like we're just we're just little somewhat like it seems like we're just small insignificant when it comes to the creator of the entire universe yet you have made him a little lower than god and then you crown him with glory and majesty you make him to rule over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes through the paths of the sea and and even the first two verses of this, it, it talks about in, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, I've prepared praises for myself. Like from sort of the lowest of society, the, the babies that, that can't really do, and the infants that don't really have much influence because they're just babies, just learning stuff, I guess. But just, yeah, it has... There's such an importance for every single human being that we see not only the broken and the poor, but also even the religious elite. Anybody who's who's willing to bow their knee before Jesus, because we come to this nice, because we come to the story again and we see two opposite ends of the spectrum. We see a woman who doesn't have any money left because she spent it all trying to fix her ailment and she would have been the poor the broken the outcast of society you see one end of the spectrum as well as the complete other end of the spectrum the synagogue official and his daughter is uh, yeah just the top end of that spectrum they, they would have been receiving all the benefits and and loved by everybody and and included in everything totally the opposite Yet, what does he do first? He bows his knee before Jesus because he's desperate. He knows that he that even though this woman's broken and then he isn't initially appearing to be broken, he knows that he needs Jesus just as much. And so it, if we get to that point, or if someone gets to that point, it doesn't matter what rung of society they're on. It's just usually the broken that realize and get to that point so much sooner and God's heart is towards them that are broken. So again, going back to the similarities between these two stories, what's another major similarity between both of them that, that we see? It's faith. I think that's what I had next. Yes. It's the faith. It's the faith of both of them. In verse 34, he says, and he said to her, as the bleeding woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And I was, I was talking to Tad yesterday about this, and he, he kind of pointed out some, some interesting thoughts that, that didn't hit me right away, but just the idea of, of her faith was incredibly important in this to the point that Jesus didn't even know that he was healing. He, the woman was just healed, and, and he didn't even realize it. But it was, it was because of her faith that it, it was obviously Jesus doing the healing. God healed her. But her faith had a major role to play in the fact that she was healed from that. And so we can't discount our own faith when it comes to believing in God for miracles, for people coming to Christ. When, when we enter into to prayer meetings to, to believe that 
what we're asking for, we will receive if we ask with pure motives and are walking right before the Lord and things like that. But our faith is incredibly important, which is why in verse 36, he tells Jairus after the girl had died, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. There's clearly something important about the fact he wouldn't just, Jesus wouldn't just waste his breath and say, oh yeah, you know, believe, but I know that I'm going to do that anyway. No, he, there's something important about Jairus believing and, you know, potentially if, if he didn't believe, who knows how the story ends, but he says, believe, don't be afraid, just believe. And we also see that, that faith in this case is the antithesis of fear. We don't have to be afraid if, if we have faith in God. And, we even, and that was one of the really big ones for me just even yesterday as I was, as I was thinking about what I really want to get across here. And, and I was slightly nervous about speaking and, and just that verse, if I can trust in the Lord and speak or just rely on him, I don't have to be afraid anymore because if I'm doing things correctly, if I'm walking in righteousness, like Tad was talking about just earlier, um, then I don't have to be afraid. I can just believe that, that God will use me for good you know, whatever that may be. So, yeah, we must have faith. That's a, that's a huge point that Jesus is trying to get across here. So, uh, yeah, what other similarities do we see in these stories? I also see, I, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, the, the total brokenness and dependency upon Jesus They've gotten to the point where they've tried everything. The woman has tried everything. She's spent all her money, and she hasn't gotten anywhere. She needs to depend on God. She needs to depend on Jesus in order to be healed properly. That's the only way that it comes. As well as Jairus is is totally, like, he's on his last rung. He, I mean, he doesn't even know his daughter died until until a little bit in the middle of the story. But he comes to Jesus and says, I, there's nothing else that they can do. There's, you know, She's going to die, and there's no way to reconcile this. You need to come and heal her. He's totally dependent upon God. He's desperate for, for Jesus to answer, for Jesus to come and heal him, or his daughter. And even thinking about it, it, there seems to be a direct correlation between dependency and faith. If someone is has faith, they will be dependent. If someone is desperate, if someone is desperate, they have no other choice but to have faith in God. The the two coincide together. Even you know, thinking about William Booth, for example, his quote, God doesn't answer prayer. God answers desperate prayer. Faith and dependency they coincide with each other, and and we need to have both. We need to be broken before God and realize that He's the only one that that can help our situation, whatever it is that we're asking for. Otherwise, it's not even worth asking for. Even reading um, Calvin's Institutes, his uh, chapter on prayer was actually really cool. Um, if anybody hasn't read it, it's actually yeah really fun to read through, which I, I wouldn't expect from Calvin. 
because of how everybody else portrays him. But he says that if you're actually, if you're praying for something, don't just pray for something, you know, unless it's, unless you have your wants as needs, you know, don't even bother asking for it because we know that God can and will answer, but they need to be needs. We need to be desperate. We need to call out with, with a true desire and passion for the thing that we're actually asking for. So that's where faith and dependency, they intersect. Oh yeah. And these are the two verses that, that point out his, uh, each of their dependencies they, and obedience and re- reliancy upon Jesus to help the situation. Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly and saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come heal her. As well as the woman who, who just said, if I just touch his garment, if I just touch his robe, and I'll be healed. And then afterwards, she came down and fell before him and told the whole, told him the whole truth. And so there also needs to be an obedience before God and a, a kneeling before him in order to see these things happen. And so just, just finishing with First um, John 3 was a great text that illustrates this point of, of the fact that God moves among the broken, the, the poor, the outcasts of society, as well as he answers our prayers if we do so. It says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. We will know this uh, by this, that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before God, before him. Whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And in this verse, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. The things that are pleasing in his sight are the poor and the broken, are the downcast, the the rejected and the throwaways of society, the the people that we need to minister to and, and can't lose focus of. And if we stand on the faith, uh, in faith, in what God has already done for us and what he can do among them, then that's where we really see God actually move. So that's what I've got. Um, Let me close this in prayer. Father, I just thank you for the message that you clearly laid out in your word. I, I thank you for yeah, just the fact that you love the poor and the broken, the fact that you love the widow and the orphan, that you love those who realize their need and dependency upon you. God, I, I just pray that we would be able to minister to them effectively and God, that, that we would have faith to see you actually move. Um, yeah, I, I just, I just thank you for, for your heart in this, in these two stories and, and how we can see how much you love those people, um, that come to you in obedience and a desire to see you heal and, and a desire to be a part of your family and, and to, to want to know who you are and be healed by you. 
And I, I just pray that we would keep our, our mind focused on, on these types of people, on, on the people that you have called us to, and, and that we would be a place of refuge for anybody who we come in contact with, and that we would share your love with all those people and, and get to know them and, and love them and, and, um, you know, just minister to them and in, in whatever their needs present. I, gotta, I pray that we always keep this focus in our own mind. And I pray this in Jesus' name.